Hello and welcome to the One Football Women's Podcast. Hello everyone and thank you for joining us again. Later on, I'll be joined by Alejandro Gonzalez to chat ongoings in Spain after the Supercopa Femenina and the return of Virginia Torresia, which he will definitely tell me how to pronounce properly. First though, I'm delighted to welcome Nancy Gillen, content coordinator at Give Me Sport Women to the show for a bit of WSL chat. Nancy, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. How have you been enjoying the return of women's football in England after that little winter break? Oh yeah, I mean it's it's just suddenly got really really competitive, hasn't it? I think before the winter break it was still shaping up nicely, but since we've come back it just seems to be like even more unexpected results. Um the table is looking very very hard to predict. So yeah, I think the next few months are going to be really exciting. We'll get on to one of those shock results from the weekend very, very shortly. First, though, I think we have to start in Manchester, where a lot of the action took place. Nancy, like me, you have a soft spot for Arsenal, and your winter hasn't been that enjoyable when it comes to the women's team. But there was a big, big late goal to rescue a point against Manchester City at the weekend. What did you make of the game? Um, I thought it was quite a... It was a bit of a strange game, Um you know, like I thought Arsenal seemed much improved. Like you said, it's been a bit of a bleak. Well, December was a bit bleak, losing the FA Cup final, nearly going out of the Champions League. And then this month, losing to Birmingham was a massive shock as well. Um, so I think definitely Arsenal seemed to be a bit of a, you know, better than they've been in previous weeks. Um, the same can be said for City as well, um, compared to the first half of the season. They were in really poor form and are now having a resurgence. So, you know, I think both teams improved of, of recent performances. But it, at the same time, I, th- I think it was a bit, I was almost a, like a little bit bored. It, you know, there wasn't that many chances on goals for either team. It was kind of a, just a bit, seemed a bit very cagey. Um, apart from probably the last few minutes where Arsenal got the equaliser and then seemed potentially maybe they could even get a winner as well. But um yeah, I think the main talking point from the from the that match seemed to be the the refereeing decision uh to which then led to the Man City goal, which which I think from an Arsenal perspective was very, very frustrating and I think definitely could have quite a big impact on, on the you know, the table at the end of the season. Yeah, obviously. I mean, Arsenal, I guess when you talk about that caginess, Arsenal coming into the game on a bad run, City on a good run, but without being really tested by one of the top teams. And maybe both teams a little bit afraid not to not to lose the game rather than going on to win it. It was a little bit, to me, a little bit like Arsenal's uh, Conti Cup defeating to Manchester United last midweek. You mentioned the refereeing decision there, the the for first the intervention and then the decision to not stop play having deflected a ball that looked like it was going to be intercepted by Beth Mead. City went and scored. Jonas Eideval said if they're going to be on Sky Sports refereeing matches, they should be given all the resources they need in order to prepare, practice and work on their fitness. That's where we need to be uh, that's where we need to help each other in the football family. I'm much more about trying to raise the standard around refereeing because that will do that. We all make mistakes. I do. I totally understand that. It's part of football. I think the referee can also understand why we get upset. He also called it the best pass of the game. You know, a little bit tongue-in-cheek. What do you think the FA... This isn't the first time we've had 
a discussion like this this season and you know it's something that Emma Hayes brings up often it's you know we saw an offside goal on the opening day of the season when Arsenal beat Chelsea and Emma Hayes mentioned it then and mentioned the introduction of VAR into the women's game we saw Arsenal upset that a goal was disallowed or the whistle was blown before they had the chance to score a goal against Tottenham in the North London derby what can or must the FA do to give officials in the women's game more support the right amount of support I think, well, for me personally, it's just a, a case of, of making sure that the referees are professional, like as soon as possible. Um, yeah, they're currently semi-pro. And then I think to have a professional league that is increasingly, you know, having more and more resources poured into it and is now at a certain standard, it just it makes doesn't make a lot of sense to have then semi-pro refs. And I think you can see that, like, you know, all the examples that you just listed, um, you can see the disparity in, in the officiating compared to kind of the level that the league's at now. I know the the FA have done, you know, they are kind of moving towards that. And I think at the start of this season, they um, announced that the Women's Super League would be more aligned to the Premier League and working with is it the professional game match officials. So like the, the women's referees will be using the same like facilities and training. And uh, as, as the men's refs, but I think it's just that that professionality. Like I think you just need to make sure you've got full time refs for the WSL. Um, I don't really, I don't know enough, and I don't really know why that hasn't been done. Because for me, it just seems like common sense. And then in that situation, you know, if you've got professional refs, I think you can have more of a debate about the standard of refereeing, and you know whether you know. But at the moment, it, it seems quite unfair to criticise the referees when they're probably just doing the best job they can within the resources that they're given. So, yeah, for me, just just making sure they're professional, I think, just has to happen. Yeah, I think, exactly. It comes back to this question of what more can we do? And this is a question that we keep revisiting in women's sport in general. Before we talk about the quality or the standard, as you put it, we have to talk about what more can be done and what more has to be done to put people, put women on a level footing. Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's definitely kind of the main point. And like, I think it's all well and good, you know, having uh, investment in certain areas and it and it being on TV and uh, you know increasing audiences and more people going to the, the stadiums and making it accessible and all of that. But you just have, to, I think, you have to ensure that at literally every level is is rising at the same pace. And and officiating definitely isn't rising at the same pace at the moment. So that is something that needs to change. Arsenal did obviously score a late equaliser. Uh, that was even more crucial, that point that they picked up after Chelsea had dropped points against Brighton. Mangan Walsh made some brilliant saves in this game, becoming the first goalkeeper in WSL history to reach 500 career saves. Yeah, she was just brilliant. I think uh, she's definitely one of the more underrated players in the WSL. And I know that she switched alliances to Ireland, didn't she? Because she didn't really have a chance of getting mm. into the England setup. And I think... You know, obviously, there's a there's a large amount of English, very talented English goalkeepers. Um, but they maybe England will regret that at some point. But yeah, it was a brilliant display from her. Did the result shock you, or do you always feel like Brighton and Hope Powell have the, the ability to upset some of the bigger teams? I think it did shock me in the sense of more kind of a continuation of Chelsea's bad form. I think that is what's maybe shocking me the most um just the fact that we're not used to seeing Chelsea like this they are in a bit of a slump and you know they lost to Reading 
last month they had they got knocked out of the Champions League at the group stage. So I think it was like you said. I think Brighton are a very very good team and they're even better this season. And they have previously, um, you know, they've they've got they've got experience of of stunning uh, Chelsea. Was it was it last season? I think they were the mm. only team to beat Chelsea in the whole league. Yep. Um, but and yeah, so I could you know if anyone was was gonna do it, even though Reading have already done it this season, I think it you probably backed Brighton. But I think it's for me the surprise is more the fact that Chelsea are still struggling because I I would have thought that it would be a little bit of a slump. There'd be a winter break and Emma Hayes would be able to pick her team back up again. Um. So yeah, it's it is slightly concerning for for Chelsea. I think that they weren't able to. I think not not scoring as well. I know we've just raved about Megan Walsh, but not even getting on the score sheet, I think, is a bit of a, a surprise as well. And when Chelsea don't get on the score sheet, we have to touch on the fact that Sam Kerr isn't around at the moment. She's at the Asia Cup with Australia, where she is having no trouble finding the back of the net. I think it's, yeah. I think it's six goals or seven goals in the first two games for her. Chelsea face Aston Villa in the FA Cup, then they play Man- uh, West Ham and Man City in the WSL before she's likely to return from Asia. They have loads of depth up front, but do they have anyone, especially in front of goal, quite with her quality? And could that cost them again? Can you see it costing them again? I can. I, I think I can. Yeah, I think actually, what's what's maybe less of the players they have, but more it's more it's about her partnership with Kirby. When Sam Kerr and Frank Kirby play on the pitch at the same time, they're they're just telepathic. They can, you know, they they can just do incredible things together. I think maybe that's more of the issue. Maybe that Kirby's missing that partner that that you know they they just do magical things um at the same time I, I can't really feel too sorry for them just because of that depth in squad you know they've got like Peniel Harder they've got Beth England they do have Kirby they've got really really incredible attacking talent anyway so you would think that even though Kerr's away they would still be able to um be scoring um, and maybe does it suggest an over-reliance on Kerr? I don't know. But yeah, the next games, West Ham and Man City, I mean, it's they're, they're both tough games. They're definitely not, not easy games and they will have to be scoring. So I think Emma Hayes will be hoping that kind of her, her other strikers really start to pull through now. And speaking of teams who maybe share that load a little bit better and don't rely on one person putting the ball in the back of their net, not that there isn't other qualities at Chelsea, especially, you know, you mentioned Beth England, Sam Kerr, um, Frank Kirby. Manchester United seem to be mounting a title challenge without any sort of star forward. I mean, obviously you've got Ella Toon, you've got Katie Zellum chipping in and, and getting assists, especially you've got Alicia Russo, but there's no striker that, you know, like Arsenal have, like Man City have as well, like Chelsea have, where you look at them and go, yeah, yeah, they're going to score this week. They won 3-0 against Tottenham this weekend. They became the first team to score three against Spurs in a game this season. It's six in a row without conceding. Do they have what it takes, even without that regular, reliable goal scorer, to keep the pace with Arsenal and Chelsea until the end of the season? Um, yeah, it's such a Man U is such an interesting one, and I'm, I've previously done like a podcast with some of the uh, Man U supporters, a very passionate fan base. Um, but we were talking at the kind of like just a few weeks into the season where Man U were quite inconsistent. Uh, not get really getting those results, and I think you know part of that was the fact that Mark Skinner's a new manager, and they hadn't, as a new manager for Man U, not in general, but they hadn't really kind of got that rhythm going. They hadn't, you know, 
fully consolidated under him and and his playing style. But that now seems to have, you know, they seem to have completely hit their stride. And their current form is is outstanding. Like there's there's it's not even the goal scores. I, I don't think they've conceded since. For, for weeks weeks and weeks they haven't even conceded so they are uh, yeah I'm I'm intrigued to see whether they can keep it up I think um, it's you know they've got those games in hand they've got two one game in hand on Arsenal and two games in hand in, in Chelsea so I think when you know that all kind of works itself out it'll be interesting to see where that you know how where they are placed but at the moment Arsenal and Chelsea seem to be slipping up and Man U aren't. So there isn't really any reason why in two, three weeks, Man U could be really either at the top of the table or really pushing. But yeah, I think it's an interesting point what you said about the striker. I think, I mean, they were basically tipped to sign Blackstenius um, from Sweden and then Arsenal just just swooped in and, and, and got her. And I think that would have been a massive blow. Um, I don't know if they've got any more plans to bring in a striker, but if 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 they do kind of have a bit of a you know struggle or downtime of, of form, that might be the reason why. But like you said, you've got Russo, you've got Elatoon, you've got a lot of really good attacking players. So yeah, I'm I'm, inter- I'm very intrigued by Manu. I'd say that I, I'm, I'm really yeah I'm very intrigued to see how it turns out for them. You mentioned the the games in hand there. Obviously, we'll have a bit of a clearer picture this week. Arsenal and Chelsea both playing in midweek. It's a nightmare squeezing these podcasts in when there are midweek games <laughs> and finding ways to make sure you're talking about things that aren't too old but won't go out of date quickly. Obviously, yeah, Chelsea play on Wednesday evening um, and, and Arsenal on Thursday. And tough games as well. We mentioned already Chelsea play West Ham, Arsenal, Brighton, who Chelsea did drop points to at the weekend. Man United will be looking at those games, I do think, with the hope that more points could be dropped by by those two. And yeah, then it comes down to the next week's Chelsea away for United in the Conti Cup and then Arsenal and Man City in their next two WSL games. Is that make or break? Is that really the true litmus test of this side? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I was, yeah, I was going to say they've still got the return fixtures against both Arsenal and Chelsea. And, you know, if we're talking about at least even Champions League, you've got to be beating Spurs and City as well. Um, so I think it's it's definitely those games, like those games, any result they can get from them is going to be absolutely massive. But yeah, that run where it's Arsenal City, that's that is essentially you know if they win both of those, they they they've you know suddenly become not favourites but very strong contenders for the title. So it's they've they've got it all to play for, and and if they can keep up the run of form, they'd be very confident that they can get a result against those teams. I want to take a little trip further down the table now quickly. There was, again, some big results at the weekend, but I think the biggest was Aston Villa. They scored a late winner through Alicia Lehman to beat Leicester, who have shown a bit of a revival lately. Uh, The win probably means Villa won't get dragged into the relegation battle. What probably means that even more was the signing of Jill Scott on loan. What did you make of the move? Um, yeah, it was a. I mean, great for Villa. I think to have a player like her, uh, really, really experienced, has played at the top level of women's football for basically as long as I can remember. Um, I think that's a that's massive for for them. And you know, like you said, I don't think they're going to be dragged into a relegation battle. But I think just consolidating their place in the women's super league. I think a player like that is definitely beneficial. Um, I think on her side, it's definitely an attempt. I think she did similar with going to Everton on loan last season. And I think she has, she's got the Euros 
100% in her eye line and she she will want to be making that squad so she seems to be going on loan to these teams that are um probably well in her opinion less competition in the squad so she can play more I think to make a bid to be in that England team um come the summer for the Euros um I'm I'm not sure if it's going to work like in, in my opinion I love Jill Scott and I think she's a great player but I don't I think potentially there might be better players in midfield to pick for the Euros but I think it's it seems a clever decision you know if if you want to be playing in those big international tournaments you also need to be playing in the league week in week out so yeah good, I think good luck to her it makes sense for her and it it makes sense for Villa as well That was actually going to be my next question about the Euros obviously as you say She's been playing for as long as pretty much any of us can remember. Uh, still going at 34, 154 England caps. And while there's so much talent for England now, it feels like a lot of it is really offensive talent. Even in midfield, and you think of Ella Toon or you think maybe of, of Jordan Nobbs, who missed the last World Cup to injury. You think of Katie Zellum, who we mentioned at Manchester United, Alessia Russo. Frank Herbie's played in midfield recently for England, sort of ahead of the of Kira Walsh at the base of the midfield. Do you think a lack of competition, maybe for a more defensive-minded or a more physical midfielder, could see Jill Scott play a massive part in the summer? Yeah, potentially. I think I think if, if she is included, um, I think it'd probably be because of that. Um, although interestingly, I am not opposed to Leah Williamson uh, being midfielder, and she's that um, Serena Vivman seems to seems to like that idea. So if you had say, I mean, I'm not sure who the centre backs are going to be, but say if you had Steph Halton and Millie Bright, and and you had Leah Williamson in a more defensive midfield position, I mean that could be quite a good option. Um, but I think you are right. I think if Jill Scott was in any other position in the squad I don't think her selection would be debased I just don't think she'd be in the team but I think because she's in an area where maybe we are slightly lacking um she could be included so yeah that that is it's it's one to to look out for definitely well Serena there you go if you're listening Leah Williamson into midfield and (laughs) jobs are good and uh Nancy Thanks so much for joining me. I'd love to keep chatting WSL, um, but we've got to talk about the Spanish Super Cup as well. Uh, so I've got Alejandro on the way for that. Where can people find you and more of your work? Yeah, so uh, well, my Twitter handle is Nancy underscore Gillen if people want to follow that. And then everything I write goes on uh, Give Me Sport Women and our Twitter handle is Give Me Sport W. So yeah, you can find me there. We don't just talk WSL here on the One Football Women's Football Podcast. We like to branch out. We like to see what's happening around the world and around Europe in particular. Last week, we had some focus on Italy. This week, we're off to Spain. And there is no better tour guide than One Football's very own Alejandro de la Cruz, Diago Gonzalez. Ali, how's it going? Uh, good, Luis. How are you doing? Nice to be back here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us again. It's great to have you. And we know how much you, how much passion you have for Spanish football, how much knowledge you yeah. have for Spanish football. And there's no better week to get you on than when the Supercopa Femenina has just happened. Another trophy for Barcelona, one that they actually didn't win last season. They beat Atletico Madrid 7-0 in the Supercopa Femenina final after beating Real Madrid last week in the semifinal. Caroline Graham Hansen was the absolute star of the match, no? 
Yeah, absolutely. Really, we are talking about that one of the best players in Europe, and we we saw we saw in the game we saw in the game how dangerous he can be in the attack for the rivals and how wonderful is this is she can be for Barcelona to provide goals. Uh, she was also last year. She was one of the keys to the perfect season of Barca, but this season some health issues she was suffering some cardiac problems didn't allow us to watch her as much as we would have liked but now that she's back on the pitch we have seen what she's able to do when she has the ball in an important game hat trick and a title for Barcelona yeah you're right you do you want to explain a little bit more about the the cardiac situation that had her ruled out earlier uh, yeah the situation was that uh, on 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 last fall uh, Caroline Grant Hansen undergoes some cardiac examinations with Barcelona and they decided to stop her, to stop, uh, to make her stop playing for a little, to check up some things. But after she, uh, after all the doctors have checked that she's okay and she can uh, develop playing football in good conditions, uh, she, ha we, she has just came back for, with the trainings for Barcelona and now we can see, we can see her on the pits. And it was it was fitting, know that she scored this hat trick. I mean, everybody knows how great Barcelona are. People, we've seen the awards that go Alexia Putellas way, and the recognition for Jennifer Hermoso as well. People talk about Atisat Oshuala or Lika Martins, but Graham Hansen is right up there with the best of them. No, yeah, it's something curious for me, really, because while Spanish players on Barcelona they have got a well-deserved recognition. We can say that uh, Colin Graham Hansen was the one, the forgotten one in the nominations because she wasn't nominated for the Ballon d'Or, she wasn't nominated in the Best, she wasn't neither nominated in the uh, uh, Best Eleven. But we have seen when she jumps into the pits and when she's on the on a uh, plane, she's like a silent leader, and all the players know that they need to associate with her if they want to be successful. So this is something that it's been curious because we didn't see her uh, with more recognitions that uh, than the than the ones than the ones she deserved. Yeah, and the idea. I think she was fantastic at the at the World Cup, for example, um, just two years ago. The idea that Ada Hegerberg can come out of international retirement and her and Graham Hansen will be up front together or in the attack together for Norway should scare everybody else on the continent ahead of Euro 2022 coming up in the summer. Um, for sure, really. And also think that uh, with, uh, with along with Ada Hegerberg and Graham Hansen, uh, Caroline Graham Hansen has also given one step ahead in terms of the leader she is now for the Norwegian national team because before she was the one that it was supposed that she was she was going to be the next leader of the team, but uh, the the circumstances with Ada Hegerberg they, uh, they they changed they changed the situation and she took the leadership and she did it on a, on a very good way. Obviously, we've touched on Graham Hansen and her health issues that held her back earlier in this season. She wasn't the only one who took to the pitch on Sunday, given some health issues. A little more seriously, a little more long-term, it was the first game in two years or around two years for Virginia Torresia. Alejandro will properly pronounce that for me now, I'm sure. Ale, firstly, can you tell us how to pronounce the name properly? And secondly, can you tell us why her appearance in the match was so, so special? 
Yeah, the pronunciation at first is Virginia Torrecilla. <laughs> yeah, now that's the authentic Spanish way of saying it and something that I just can't do. Not really, but really, but Virginia, she represents all what is good in football. She's a player that is loved for all the players, all the teams they love her. Is a wonderful player, not only in the pitch, but also as a person. And all the Spanish football families suffer a lot when she told uh, two years ago, it was uh, after the coronavirus pandemic started, she told that she was suffering a brain tumor and she needed to undergo a surgery. And all the football, all the Spanish football stand with her, tried to make her feel like uh, what she is, one of the best players in Spain. And she has been posting all the process of recovery on Instagram. We have seen, for example, how she was suffering when all the when all, the, all all she she started with the chemotherapy and all her hair was falling down and all the situation she was all the she was going through but the happiest thing it was that when on the last minutes of the game even though the game was 7-0 for Atletico Madrid all the stadium stand to to welcome Virginia Torrecilla because really Sometimes, as, as one Spanish journalist said, life can be marvelous. And having back Virginia Torrecilla in football is the best news Spanish football can have. Not just a standing ovation, but some beautiful scenes with the Barcelona players after the game had ended. Yeah, really, really. Sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, a sport is more than a result. And the biggest victory on the Super Cup, it wasn't the 7-0 from Barcelona, but also having Virginia Torrecilla back in the in the game. Uh, I and all the all the players from Barcelona they went up to uh, to th- uh, lift her up in the air because it was a moment of celebration, not not just for winning a title or or for playing a final, but having a player like her back and a person like her. Uh, is the best news Spanish football can have. Yep, fantastic for her, fantastic for Atletico Madrid and a big day, a meaningful day for everybody involved in Spanish football as well. Uh, Lastly, while you're here, as our resident Spanish football expert, but even more specifically, our resident Real Madrid expert, (laughs) we have to talk about the club a little bit. It's been a disappointing season so far. There's been ambition this month. The signing of Sophie Svava from Wolfsburg. Jenny Hermoso has spoken about an offer or an approach, at least talks with Real Madrid, even though she will be staying at Barcelona. Do you think this is the sort of ambition that we're seeing from the club to repair what was a bad half of the season so far? Uh, For sure, really. Real Madrid always wants to win in every competition they took part. And and we have seen that the signing of Sophie Svava from Wolfsburg, it's been... The first step of what we can expect, one Real Madrid with many good names in the future. We are thinking that Real Madrid, okay, maybe this season has been a bit, a, a, a bit, a bit, a bit dissolved with with ups and downs. For example, the sacking of David Aznar, the arrival from Alberto Toril, all the physical problems from the players. But nowadays, I think uh, Real Madrid uh, is on the on the position to make a very good second part of the season, even though they will have this uh, Champions League quarterfinals in Barcelona against against uh, FC Barcelona in no camp. 
So, but I'm pretty optimistic that uh, it's not going to be as easy as everyone is expecting for Barcelona to eliminate Real Madrid in Champions League. Optimistic that Real Madrid will compete with Barcelona in the Champions League. You heard it here first. And optimistic that Real Madrid will climb the league table in the second half of the season as well. Yeah, yeah, optimistic that the Real Madrid at the end of the, of the season in the table, they will be on one of the three positions to play for the Champions League. Okay, fighting for the league is now impossible because no one can stop Barcelona, and that's uh, that's obvious. But on this competition, I can see fight fighting Real Madrid for the titles in 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 Copa del Rey. That's I can see if the if the draws they are good and Real Madrid does a, a proper work, they can be fighting for the title in Copa de la Reina, sorry. And in Champions League, let's see, it's an 180-minute match. So let's see how the first game goes in Valdebebas and how the second game will be in Camp Nou. But I think Real Madrid, they can compete. We saw it on the last game in Supercopa that, that the gap between both teams is getting more and more narrow. Ali, I can't argue with that. And I certainly can't argue with you when it comes to Spanish football either. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure, Luis. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so at podcast at onefootball.com and you can reach me on Twitter at LG Ambrose. Please send in your questions, your comments, your feedback. And if not, until next week, 